every one of these doctors, you know, we're talking kind of the, the four to six or something, had a, a major mentor, medical mentor, who tried to take, argue them out of going into this field. You know, they just said, no, you know, this is a career ender. You know, what are you, crazy? I'm Alex Carolyn, a reporter with the Cancer Letter and editorial associate with the Cancer History Project. For today's episode of the Cancer History Project podcast, I spoke with Tim Wendell, lecturer at Johns Hopkins University, author of Cancer Crossings, and a member of the Cancer History Project's editorial board. While researching his book from 2013 to 2017, Wendell spoke with the doctors of ALGB, or Acute Leukemia Group B. Among them was longtime St. Jude Children's Research Hospital CEO Donald Pinkle, who died March 9th, as well as Jerry Yates, Lucius Sinks, James and Jimmy Holland, Emil Tom Fry, and Emil J. Freireich, beginning when he was diagnosed in 1966 until he died in 1973. The ALGB is largely responsible for the scientific advances that brought the mortality rate of childhood cancer from 90% to where it stands today, at about 10%. This group used unorthodox methods, testing combinations of drugs to see what stuck, which earned them the nickname Cancer Cowboys. While these methods were criticized and considered out of the box at the time, they largely contributed to the scientific advances that successfully treat ALL. Wendell tells us about the doctors who made it all happen. You know, why now? Why write about this? And part of it was, you know, it's this amazing story and this amazing, these amazing medical pioneers, but they're about ready, at least some of them, and some did, leave us. And uh, so, again, I've never quite had a project like that where it's just been all of a sudden peddled to a metal and then the other thing was, oh man, the learning curve just for me, because um, I, I didn't know this stuff. Um, another quick story. I'll, I'll bore you with a couple more stories. They're all in the book, at least some, <laughs> in some part. But um, it's so funny because I live in Charlottesville now, but that's where mm-hmm. Lucius, Lucius Sinks, was living. And I thought at first my brother's main doctor was Pinkle. But Pinkle had left before my brother Eric started um, the clinical trial, started the treatment at Roswell Park because uh, Pinkle had left to go start St. Jude. And um, even though a lot of what Pinkle had put put in place became, you know, the standard at Roswell Park. And so I'm going, okay, hang on, who's director of pediatrics? If Pinkle left and like, I think it was 62, 63, my brother started there, what, 65, 66, I think is when he was diagnosed, 66. And I find Lucius, and Lucius is, he's the one who succeeded Pinkle at Roswell Park as director of pediatrics, and he's in in Charlottesville. So I started coming down to Charlottesville, and we always met at the same restaurant, the Boar's Head outside of town. We always met at the <laughs> same table. Um, I'd always reserve it, and um, and I'd always get there early, about a two-hour drive down. From DC, mm-hmm. DC area, and uh, let's just say the first couple. I mean, how many lunches did we have? We didn't, we had several even after the book came out. The first couple were a disaster. You know, you could just see him like looking at me, going, "This guy doesn't know anything." You know, what? Why? Why is he trying to do this project? And I believe it was our third lunch, and he came in, and again, I'd always get there first. So that's something I always tried to do. And he, he he was um throughout all this he he was walking with a cane, you know, he's had some problems with his legs. And he was coming in one day into the restaurant and I'm sitting there and I see him coming and I see, okay, he's walking with the cane, but then I see him carrying this um big white canvas bag. And again, I think I've got this anecdote somewhere in the book. And he comes over to the table and there's a lot of stuff in this bag. And and he just puts the bag down in the middle of the table, and he's a boom. You know that's how heavy it is. And I'm just I'm going Lucius, what, what, what's going on? And he starts pulling out these books. One of them was 2,000 pages written by Holland and Fry about cancer, wow. and another one is a book actually he had written. And and 
you know, several I kept, several he said, get back to me when you can. But I'll never forget him saying, you're starting to ask the right questions. These will help. <laughs> and he had gone through and actually put stickies, you know, on yeah. very especially that 2000 page thing. I never would have gotten through that. But in a sense, things that would help me understand the yeah. disease, but also what these what these guys were trying to do. I remember leaving there going, I'd been really, excuse me, bummed out about, yeah, the lack of progress a little bit. And yeah. I still remember getting in the car to drive back up to Northern Virginia and going, okay, I think we've turned a corner here a little bit. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm much more bowed up about that. So that was, those were fun times. You know, it sounds like, these are huge personalities, all of the guys, you know, Pinkle, Yates, um, Sinks, Lucius Sinks, and then Holland. You know, yeah. it sounds like and people... Fry and Freinrich, too, you know, even though they oh, were Roswell right. Park. But... I'm just curious. I mean, you said Lucius Sinks was sort of, you know, now you're starting to ask the right questions. And you mentioned that Pinkle, you know, was very, you know, he, he kind of really listened to you. You know, how did you navigate going between them all? And if you could kind of briefly describe what it was like interacting with them all in, in, in these different settings. <laughs> they were all, um, how can I say, markedly different, you know, in personality. And I think sometimes in approach, I don't know that for sure, in philosophy. And I think it was Holland at one point told me, um, because they would get together every quarter. And I wish I'd been a fly on the wall during those meetings, because it just sounds like, you know, it, it, there were intense debates and arguments. But one of the things that they did that I think really showed hmm, their maturity, and I think it also showed hmm. the magnitude of the disease they were going against, is they really, as Helen said, we, we would fight like cats and dogs. And I know they did, you know, <laughs> I mean, just over, you know, you know, just how to proceed medically. And they would often do it at these quarterly meetings or, you know, on the phone or whatever. The fact that they kept in touch so well because they didn't have Zoom and they didn't have email and all this stuff, I just find amazing. They're faxing stuff to each other. But um, one of the things they decided on early on, and I don't know if it was a formal decision or just one that they all decided the best way to proceed was, okay, we can fight all day, but um, at, at the end of the session, at the end of the day, uh, we're together. You know, this group's still, yeah. you know, paramount. It's still, um, you know, keeping the group together uh, and being loyal to the group was amazingly important. And I think one reason it was important is, and maybe it was, I don't want to say it was easier to do, but maybe it was, was they were getting so much opposition and, and they were ostracized by really so much of the rest of the medical community. I mean, Paul knows that as well as anybody. And so that I think they realized they better stick up for each other because that's all they had. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, because they were just getting, especially early on, we're talking mid-60s into probably the early 70s, they, they were just being criticized all the time. Um, Pinkle's the one who um, told me, and actually Jerry Yates too, some of the names that they were called just within the medical community and it ran the gamut. It was poison pushers, misfits, um, fools, um, and then the one I kind of globbed on to that I like. Uh, I can almost name the book this, and I should have, was Cancer Cowboys. But, you know, cowboys, as you well know, within the medical world mm -hmm. is not a nice thing to call somebody. It's kind of somebody who's not sticking to the rules and not sticking to the protocol and not doing the due diligence that maybe needs to be done. And um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, going back, just thinking of these individuals, and again, yeah, you know, I spent more time with some than I did with others, and, and part of it was trying to figure out the best way. Again, a little bit of it's a race, um, the best way to um, get the information and the understanding that I need. Um, for example, I only met with 
James Holland once, and it became oh, wow. apparent that he he just. But we had some good, really good conversations. In fact, um, I still hear from a lot of the Holland uh, kids, but they all said you 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 know you, you got the essence of of my father, actually the essence of both their parents, because Jimmy Holland was so amazing. But with with James Hound, Dr. James Hound, the best way seemed to be, and he kind of rolled this out early on, because I called him about something to check it, you know, to flesh out some story or anecdote. And I called him late in the day. Where the hell was he? He was at Mount Sinai. And um, by that point, I believe. And and he immediately said, yes, this is a good time. You know, 4.15 to 4.45. Yeah, that's a good time. Reach me anytime. And once the question, questions get kind of, um, oh, I was, wasn't boring, but predictable, yeah, I'll need to go. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so that's when I would call. And he would be kind of finishing up, you know, his day usually, you know, maybe. He, and, and that was a great time to get him. Whereas his wife was like, geez, Jimmy, was just like, she's a she was a treasure. I mean, she was just, mm. you know, the first thing she would say, you know, even if it was an old phone interview, you know, say to the phone interview is, how much time do you need? I'm like, oh, man, I, I don't get that. And so how they stayed married, I have no idea. But um, <laughs> That's amazing. When did you first find out who would be the primary oncologist you would interview for this book? How did you kind of narrow down that list? Mm. They kind of narrowed it down for me, I guess, a little <laughs> bit. I, 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 I knew I needed sinks. You know, I, mm-hmm. I knew I needed my, my brother's main doctor or the, again, director of pediatrics. You know, and, and I must admit I was a little thrown at first because I thought, again, it was Pinkle. And Pinkle's such an amazing story. He's such a, you know, he's so much of um, that world. I mean, Western New York and Buffalo. He was from Buffalo. He's a proud Buffalonian. Um, I, I think one reason St. Jude, and this is kind of my opinion, but St. Jude is such an accomplished research hospital facility today. He kind of brought um, a northern temperament and kind of a civil rights, for lack of a better word, civil rights viewpoint or philosophy to that part of the world before it's time. And yeah. and I think that's one reason, you know, you know, he, he, I remember him telling me just stories that were just, you know, him arriving in Memphis and going, what the heck am I doing here? You know, cause it was just so, you know, again, I, somewhere in the book, he had a meeting early on and Pinkle comes across as very unassuming in some ways. You know, he's very friendly. He's kind of like a Jimmy Holland. You know, bedside manner is awesome. But he's got a real um, sense of right and wrong. And early on when he was talking with people, you know, Danny Thomas's bunch there at Memphis, one of the things Pinkle told them was, if I take this job, we're going to do two things. Number one, we're going to make treatment free, you know, to the families. And number two, we're going to treat black and white kids. And there was a bit of a pause, you know, um, uh, at the, you know, at the table. And <laughs> you have to pardon my language a little bit, but um, one of them replied. Now, this is one of the Memphis crowd uh, replied. Well, I guess that's okay as long as it's. Um, kind of the house help and not the field end. Pinkle was really taken aback by that. And I think uh, others of us, like me, would just go, screw this, I'm out of here. You know, these these guys, are at least some of them are knuckleheads. Not all of them. There, there were some really amazing people that had us back. But, you know, I'm not so sure I want to go to work or work with these people, or at least some of them. But it had a different reaction with Pinkle. Pink was just saying, I'm going to show these SOBs, you know, and he kind of jammed, you know, civil rights or at least pushing back against Jim Crow down their throats. 
And for that, I just go, he's amazing. In all the conversations I had with Dr. Pinkle, he's, he's just, he's just a friendly guy. And to see, you know, time and time again, this, you know, the, the fight in him is just uh, amazing. And, um, and, you know, he applies it to Memphis, at least what Memphis was back then and what he had to deal with in getting that hospital built. But in a way, he also applies it to cancer. I mean, he's got, he's got a lot of fight. You no, know, they all do, but, you know, it, it kind of throws you back a little bit with him because you don't quite expect him to go to the mat on these things almost immediately, and he does. So um, it's funny. Oh, there's, um, speaking of the pinkles, I'm, I'm shifting a little bit. It was like one of the last in-person things I did for Cancer Crossings. It was in San Francisco. And I knew, and this is this is where it's so fun sometimes. I, I was doing a presentation, and I knew one of the Holland kids was going to be there. It wasn't one that I knew right at that point, but as soon as she kind of came in, I was going, okay, yeah, that's, that's a Holland. And then I had also told a couple of the, Pinkle kids live out there. There's two of them. And during the course of the, and this was at the uh, public library downtown in San Francisco. And I'm doing my, my bit and uh, PowerPoint. And, um, and all of a sudden this other guy walks in. And as soon as he walked in, I'm going, damn, he looks like a Pinkle. And he come, and he sits right down front next to this woman who I kind of missed before. You know, you're just trying to do your thing. And I'm going, man, she kind of looks like a pinkle too. This is interesting. Mm-hmm. And um, and um, and so I do my thing. And then later I'm just standing up there and they, so the, the Holland kid comes up. You got two of the pinkle kids. And what was remarkable, they had never met each other. And yet wow. they had shared this background you know, in cancer research, but also in Buffalo. And, um, and, and, and they just, of course, hit it off. You know, they, they, they were like a couple of the blind men around the elephant. They'd all had this shared experience. That was fun. That was a crazy, crazy evening. How funny. It sounds like you grew closer with some of the oncologists than others. How did you kind of go about, you know, befriending them and, and getting to know them? I I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's not like my dad was a doctor. My dad sure wasn't. My dad was an engineer. But, you know, I felt like I, in a different way, kind of went through, um, I'm not trying to say this. I shared part of this era, too. And so I can compare notes. And, and so, therefore, I think it's... Um, important for me at times just to kind of keep in touch and and reach out like i say i I haven't talked to mary pinkle in a while and i'm realizing in talking with you i i kind of owe mary a phone call or uh, an email and sometimes i you know i took it to a after the book came out say the hollands had a place their house uh, outside of New York. And I drove up. I had a great time. And, um, so, you know, I, I don't know if that answers the question, but you can see, you know, I'm yeah. curious about them. And, um, part of it is a, a chunk of, uh, well, a chunk of cancer crossings is how my own family coped. You know, how my, how my siblings, you know, did things and, um, and in how we, you know, tried to get through. And so in a way, I'm curious about how other siblings and families get through because, um, you know, cancer, you know, cancer is going to leave a scar, you know, cancer is going to impact you in some way that you're never going to forget. So, you know, I guess that's, I'm always kind of, I'm curious about that. I'm always kind of comparing, comparing notes on that. And just saying, oh, that's, that's how they handle it. How, how, how cool is that? Yeah, I think that's important. I mean, it sounds like you did more than just kind of call people on the phone. You really made an effort to figure this all out um, in person. 
Yeah, and I think they kind of appreciated that. I, I, I don't think they – I know it drove them, at least some of the doctors, kind of crazy early on, too. <laughs> you know, me sure. come wandering in and not knowing things. But on the other hand, um, you know, I think they – and especially ones like Pinkle, Lucius, for sure, they wanted to hear about – you know, my family too, and how, how, how they coped. So, um, and it's funny, I know I'm dancing all around, but I, I asked at one point, I asked Lucius if he remembered my brother. And, and I realized this was really putting him on the spot because he was treating hundreds oh, wow. of kids. And, and, and he didn't, um, at least not right away. And, but he said, can you send me, um, you have a picture of him. And the only picture I had of Eric was, um, no, I've, I've, well, I've got several, but the one that, the one I sent him was kind of the whole family, you know, in the last year of Eric's life. And um, and Pinkle, and not Pinkle, things sent back, uh, he immediately responded and said, I'm sorry, I don't remember your brother, but, you know, I'm looking at this photo and I remember your mother. And I went, whoa, that's kind of cool. And uh, so, because my mom was the one who always took my brother to the hospital. You were. You know, for treatment for Ros- at Russell Park. That's that's really neat. Um, you uh, you mentioned a bit um, also over email that you know they they really cared about you too and were invested and curious about <laughs> you. Yeah. Uh, do you talk a bit about that? And I know you also said that it sometimes felt like Tinkle was interviewing you. Um, I'm curious what that experience was like. I mean, his. Like I say, his bedside manner and just his empathy is, um, you know, just, you know, off the chart. And it was, uh, I'll tell you, at first it was a bit alarming, you know. It was like, hang on a minute, I'm doing the interview here. But, um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm flashing on Michael Lewis again, and I don't know why, but one of the things Michael Lewis kind of stresses, and this sounds a little bizarre, but Michael Lewis, of course, has done what? The Blind Side, The Big Short, you know, Moneyball, etc. He insists he never interviews people. He says he has conversations. Now, what's the difference? Inter- interview is very much one way, you know? Yeah. And, and this is something I get a little antsy about sometimes when I do interviews is I almost feel like I'm a word vampire or something. You know, give me more words. Is with a conversation, it's back and forth. And with Lewis... If he disagrees, he'll tell you, saying, no, I don't think that's right. You know, why'd you do that? You know, and, and, and it's not like I'm going to tell doctors what they did were wrong, but I did get a little bit more gumption at times to go, well, hang on, a year before you did this, and now you're going in this direction. And, and it made, at times you'd get this pause and people kind of, hmm, you know, but, um, also, it would really help my understanding, and I and I hope the reader's understanding in the book. Um, for example, like Holland, Holland's much was much more gruff. At least he was with me than Pinkle was. Mm-hmm. You know, Pinkle was um, really, you know, he Pinkle's the one who asked the question, and we really weren't in this area, but all of a sudden out of the blue in one of our conversations, and maybe it shows up in the transcripts, I don't know, he asked me, how old were you when your brother died? And wow. um, and I went, oh, well, hang on, I was 17, I was a junior in high school. Da, 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 da. And, and he followed up with, well, you know, that's the kind of thing that impacts an entire, uh, impacts an entire life, doesn't it? And I really said, absolutely right. And because uh, I um, Right about that time in my life, I made a number of very drastic changes in just what I was going to try to do and, and such. Um, I was supposed to be an engineer. My grandfather was a civil engineer. My father was a civil engineer. And um, and I realize now, after my brother passed, I wasn't going to be any engineer. You know, if, if anything, um, you know, losing Eric, taught me that time's short and you better do what the hell you want to do because mm-hmm. nothing's guaranteed. So, you know, that's that's kind of a pinkle conversation. Whereas um, 
Holland, for example, at least with me, um, was was more gruff. And man, it's because we were doing pretty much everything on the phone, most of it on the phone. But I felt, and I think that's in the transcript at some point, if I'm going to interview, if I'm going to have a conversation rather than an interview, then at times I'm going to, um, oh, roll the dice, shoot the moon. I'm going to ask you something that maybe seems out of left field, but I think is important, you know, and put the conversation in that way. And with Holland, it was um, me asking him, and I hadn't really prepped this that much, but somebody had told me that um, growing up he learned a lot of poetry and he loved to recite poetry. And mm-hmm. and and so that kind of led now into the conversation with me saying, you know, I've heard you really enjoy poetry. You know, what's your favorite poem? You know, and 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 it really threw him. You know, because we were talking medical stuff, and he's going, "Who told you that?" Yeah, and, and I'm going, "No, that's something I just heard." You know, maybe it's wrong. It's not wrong. Okay, then what? What's your? You know, I'd love to hear. And 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 once you kind of, once I was able to reassure him that I wasn't somehow yanking his chain or making fun of him or something, yeah, you know, which I wouldn't do. But um, all of, all of a sudden the conversation turned, and it, and off the top of his head, he recited. Oh, it's somewhere there. You know, this poem I had never heard, and, and he had this beautiful voice, such a baritone voice. I mean, this kind of voice that just commands attention, you know, turns heads, and and, and, the, and he does this poem. And, and the, now, now he's turning the tables on me, and he says, to go, and of course you've heard that poem. And I go, sorry, Dr. Collins, I've never heard that poem. He goes, well, you should have, you know, and he starts telling me, you know, where it is, and I looked it up, and um, and I forgot, God, and I can't remember off the top of my head, I believe it was a, it was like a eulogy poem to somebody lost, and um, the fact that that's the poem that he can do verbatim, that he can do just off the top of his head, you know, with somebody just asking about it out of the blue, I thought was, you know, pretty insightful in a way. So, um, wow. you know, these, these are kind of weird or fun, fun conversations to have. And again, I'm emphasizing kind of conversations as opposed to straight interviews. Did that make it in the book? And Pinkle mm-hmm. kind of dances around, um, it was kind of two major sections on him, but um, you know because you kind of need Pinkle in Buffalo, and you need Pinkle then in Memphis, and doing it all um, at once was a bridge too far. But but Holland, even though Holland pops up all over the place, but other places he's more of this, um, you know. The, for ALGB, he's kind of he's like the leader, he's the ringleader, he's he's the guy pushing against this and that. And I really wanted a section where it was just kind of him. And um, and yeah, it's chapter fourteen, and it comes in. Oh, here it always, and it comes in toward the end. It was um, poem written by Thomas Gray, published in 1751. It's 144 lines. Yeah, here it is. It was inspired by the death of Richard West, who was Gray's friend and fellow poet. And this is toward the end of that chapter. And this is what Holland recited off the top of his head. just blew me away. Hang on, I'll just read a couple lines. Not the whole lot. It's just about (laughs) four lines. Full many a gem of purest ray serene, the dark unfathomed caves of ocean bare. Full many a flower is born to blush unseen and and waste its sweetness in the desert air. And that's what he just came up with off the top of his head. I'll go, holy moly. And then, you know, he's, and then a little bit later, you know, in that he said, uh, he said, I love the cadence of that, how it rolls off the tongue. Um, I learned it when I was young and I've never forgotten it. To me, it's about believing good work can be done, how good work can be accomplished if you're willing to push on, which comes up him. So, yeah. So that's the whole how, a lot of the Holland thing. At least stepping back and getting a sense of him is, is chapter 14 because he, he kind of blew me away. One of the things I liked about Holland too is he was being groomed to be a lawyer and then mm. went into medicine. 
you know, it just it talks about looking through a microscope really for the first time and just going, whoa, okay, this is where I'm going. And he was supposed to be, you know, his dad was a lawyer. I think his grandfather was a lawyer. So, you know, just the fact he went against family tradition is something I can relate to. What is ALGB exactly and, and what does it stand for? Sure. They were called acute leukemia group B. Mm. And they were, <laughs> even though they, I'm not quite sure what, what A was, and it was headed by Holland. Um, uh, other top doctors were Fry, Pinkle, Sinks, um, and they pretty much start, oh, it was in a Zebra at um, Division of Cancer Treatment at NCI, National Cancer Institute, who kind of put them together. And they roughly come together, it looks like 1962. There's a photo on page 15. And in its acute, it's ALGB, acute leukemia group B. And it looks like he got up on a ladder or a table and he's just kind of doing, it's a big group shot. And right up front is Holland. And at first, this whole group seems so big. You know, there's very few women. Looks like there's two or three in there. Um, there's, there's paid coal. You can see everybody. At first, it seems it's maybe 40 people, maybe 50 at max somewhere between 30 and 40, and it looks like such a huge group. But then you realize these are the only ones in America or even the world daring to take on childhood cancer. And mm. at that point, it doesn't seem like very many of them at all. So Holland headed them up. They formed in 62, and um, they started with a congressional grant. It was like five million bucks, and, uh, and away they went. And um, one of their first trials was using, uh, what, at the Drexate, then Kristen, um, uh, 6MP, prednisone. You know, and, and they were really the group that, um, and, and, and this is to not take anything away from Sidney Farber and, and going, what was going on in Boston and other places, but um, say Sidney Farber, uh, really, you know, all these meds were coming on board now. You know, you had Ben Christen pregnant, so, but here comes every, everything else. You know, um, 6MP, methadrexate, denomycin, cytoxin, etc. And um, and most of the old guard, and I guess I'll put Farber in the old guard, I mean, that's unfair, but um, really wanted to study them. You know, okay, here's this new one. What's this do now? And they were kind of giving them the patients uh, one at a time. And what the ALGB group did was, screw this, we don't have time. We're, we're going to do it in combination, two, three, even four at a time. And, and they didn't have time to do maybe all the extensive studies. You know, what happens when you put methadrexate with donomycin? Oh, I don't know, but this kid's dying. Let's find out. And... Mm -hmm. um, and that was where they got really criticized. But frankly, that leap of faith is also what helped turn the table against, um, you know, childhood cancer. I mean, you look at a, the disease that my brother had, acute lympho, lymphoblastic leukemia, uh, when my brother was diagnosed, had a 10% survival rate. Um, today, 90% of those kids are living to be adults. And that's because of, you know, this group and, and how they were willing to just, you know, go for it. And, uh, and so, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, you can just Google, you know, you can Google that, look at Wikipedia oh, yeah. or whatever, but they were, um, they were the ones who dared to take it off. And, mm -hmm. um, and then also came up with many of the things that we just almost take for granted today when it comes to, cancer research and cancer care. What did, what did you learn in these interviews about sort of how they were ostracized by their research community? You know, what what did, what did were you surprised by about, like, sort of what they went through in their professional lives as a result of this research they were doing, this work they were doing? Um, just how alone that they were, especially mm -hmm. early on. Um and I didn't quite get it at first. So it had to be a conversation of family with Pinkle. 
or maybe it was Jerry Yates, and um, mm-hmm. and they kept saying, yeah, everybody was against this. And I just kept, like, skimming across that. And it wasn't until a little bit later on, I go, what do you mean they were against you? What? What's what's this about? And um, and, and I think it's it's got to be really difficult to take on something like cancer, but then it's got to be maybe doubly difficult to take on like a shapeshifter of a disease like cancer and then have no support for extended periods of time from your peers or those in your professional community. Yeah, I think that's just got to be really, really difficult. And that's one of the things maybe I admire about these doctors and nurses so much because it's maybe one thing to do something difficult, but it's another thing to be doing something difficult and then everybody going, you're an idiot. What are you doing this for? Almost every, yeah, every one of these doctors, you know, we're talking kind of the, the four to six or something, had a, a major mentor, medical mentor, who tried to take, argue them out of going into this field. You know, they just said, no, you know, this is a career ender. You know, what are you, crazy? And Pinkle um, even sent me, and if, this would be roughly mid-60s. This would be about the time my brother was diagnosed. If you looked in the handbook of pediatrics um, and looked up leukemia, um, the entry is a little over a page. That's it. And, and if you look at what treatment is or ways to, you know, care or what can be done, um, pretty much it's um, make, the comfort, uh, make the patient as comfortable as possible because he or she won't be with us that much longer. It, it was a complete cave. It was a complete give up. It was waving the white flag. And... Um, and that's what these doctors and nurses, and then that nurses were just as important. That's what they refused to do. And I think it's one thing not to wave the white flag if you've got kind of a little bit of a cheering section, but I think it's another thing to try to battle something or not wave the white flag if, you know, the crowd around you is booing you or, you know, just saying you're an idiot. So that's right. they they kind of got it with both barrels in a way, and 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 it wasn't, and that extended for quite a long period of time, you know. Mm-hmm. So that that's one of the things that, and you can see I was struck by it because I just kept assuming, oh okay, they're going to take on this difficult thing and try their best, and you know the medical community is kind of with them. No, medical community was opposed to them, you know, just pretty much saying no. So, you know, that, that I just find remarkable, you know, how they just kind of kept going. And I think in some ways that's why they, despite the very much differences in personality and approach, this is why they stuck together. <laughs> that's all they had. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I imagine that during each of these interviews you could learn a new something new every time. Um, so I'm kind of curious. Mm. No, when did you know that your research was done? When it was time time to <laughs> do the book? <laughs> um, I was writing all the time, and so yeah, I tend to write and research. I go back and forth, and um, and the arc where it was more or less the arc of the book was roughly 1966 when my brother's diagnosed in 1972 when he dies and so therefore um you know there's much more and there's a little bit you know about what goes on in the late 70s and such but um you know that was the arc and is where this fit in and i was fortunate enough that a lot of the major medicine or advances in this world happened during that time. You know, I, I fudged it somewhat a little bit. I mean, there's a, um, I don't know, I did a long discovery on the blood centrifuge machine, which is really a little bit after my brother's death, but I loved it so much we wedged it in there and, uh, because <laughs> that, that's so cool. Um, and, and also they were, the other thing, that kind of golden era 
of cancer research at Roswell Park ends within what five, certainly ten years after my brother's death. And part of it is just these things that are out of um, people's control in some ways. They get a new director, um, you know, overall hospital director. He's not as savvy as um, the ones that were there who brought in, like Pinkle and Sinks and Holland. Um, the money from the state it doesn't dry up, but it's not as abundant as it once was. And a lot of them, you know, they, they, they kind of read the tea leaves and said, time to go. And they, they start to scatter with the wind. And so, um, and, and I was kind of stunned once I realized that that was roughly within a couple years after my brother's death. And, um, that, you know, that particular golden era, and I want to make sure because I feel like Russell Park's having another golden era right now, but that kind of first golden era was over. Cancer Crossings, the title instead of Cancer Cowboy, came off um, the sailing trips we used to make, we used to take as a family across Lake Ontario, and which is 40 miles across, you know, open open water from where we would go to Toronto on the Canadian side. And um, and my dad was very emphatic that all of us learned to sail. And it wasn't until I was finishing this book, I called my dad up and, um, and said, did you teach us all how to sail? Because it was your, your own kind of personal pushback to having a son diagnosed and eventually die of leukemia. And um, there was this pause. And he said, of course it was. And I went, God, you could have told me that at some point. <laughs> it kept me out of therapy. But um, because the thing is, my dad wasn't the most religious guy. I mean, he was a very spiritual guy in a way. For him, sailing was a very spiritual um, exercise, activity. And because um, he, you know, to him, you know, the wind is invisible. The wind is, it never stays the same. It's always changing in velocity or direction, and you got to know what to do. You know, you got to be able to trim your sails. And so he kind of felt if he could teach us all how to sail, we'd be fine, you know, moving ahead in life. And in a way, I think he was right. And so what we did with the cover is you got, you know, you can look at it, but it's got the, the title. And then somebody, the artist, had done little, like, waves in yellow, and um, there's a little boat, you know, down on, what, the fourth wave down or something. And I remember when the book came out, I sent copies to Pinko and Sinks and et cetera. And, um, and, and I think it was Sinks. Sinks immediately said, I love this cover. I'm going, well, great. What do you love about it? <laughs> you know, some people think the boat's a little rinky-dink or something, but, you know, whatever. And he goes, I love the way. And I go, okay, Lucius, keep talking to me, you're losing me. What do you, what do you love about the waves? And he goes, the way that they're drawn is none of the waves are equal. You know, some of them, you know, it's a little bit more faint. Others, you know, one wave second from the bottom even gives out roughly before it reaches like the right hand side or something. Um, and I went, okay, keep talking to me because you've lost me. And he goes, don't you see? He goes, those are like the clinical trials. I go, the waves are like the clinical trials? And he goes, yeah. He goes, that's what we'd be looking for in the clinical trial. We'd be looking for those little variances, how they differ just a bit, because no clinical trial is uniform, just like the waves here are not uniform. And it's when you find those subtle differences, the small differences, that that means you're onto something. That means you're starting to figure out potentially how the medicine and even how this disease works. Cool. And and that was nothing, you know, I don't think it had anything to do. I didn't even talk to, I talked to the artist afterwards. He wasn't doing anything like that, but that's the way a lot of the doctors responded to it. That's amazing. That's really lovely. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you look out. <laughs>
<laughs> well, cool. Um, I to wrap this up, um, I'm curious. Um, is there anything you found out throughout your interviews that you found to be really interesting, but couldn't make it in the book for some reason? Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier, you know, when the end of the book, I've always kind of been intrigued, you know, is there a, did you do a volume two on this? Who, who does, who does, you know, maybe, you know, when Pinkle leaves St. Jude, you know, what goes on, you know, who does he hand it off to? Maybe, you know, obviously my brother's left the scene at that point. Buffalo has probably, at least for a while, left the scene. So that's, I don't know, always kick that around a little bit, but then then you're not quite sure how you're going to end it, you know, because we're always, unfortunately, going to be dealing with some degree of cancer and such. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing I would have loved to, I, I there's, there is sections about the nurses, and I, I had to do it all over again with unlimited time. I would have more of that. But they stayed, or some a good degree of them stayed, because they felt they were being listened to. They felt that mm-hmm. they were part of this effort. And that was, that seems like a no-brainer right now. But at that point in time, from what they told me, it was very much outside the box. In fact, so much so that Holland, echoed by Sinks, told the nurses at Roswell Park, you're with these patients more than we are. We need to listen to you. You need to tell us things. I think um, you can tell in talking to them that um, this experience was like – in many in many ways, a highlight of their career, and I think it was a highlight because they were being treated as equals, and uh, that was pretty unusual back then. Hmm. Well, if there's a Cancer Crossings Volume Two, um, it would be cool if that's included. Yeah, um, yeah. I should, <laughs> you know, I still, yeah, you know, we just finished the holiday season. I still hear from a couple of them. So. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I think yeah, I think that's what you see, you know, I, you know, that's what you, I think you see in successful hospitals or facilities today. It, 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 it's a team effort, you know. For I mean, sure. and, and, and again, it's like one of those things that seems, yeah, that seems like a natural thing to do. But again, we're back to these doctors willing to listen and going beyond what the lesson, they're, they're they're searching out the nurses. You know, they're saying, okay, what enticing? You know, what, what you know, because and that's the way they would often kind of start their day is just kind of you know debriefing the nurses, which <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Um, and and I know we we covered a lot, but is there anything else you'd like to add? A little bit back to family. We can talk a lot about the doctors, which is, makes perfect sense. But, um, you know, cancer obviously impacts every family kind of in a, sometimes a different way. And, um, and let's see, uh, you know, I, I still tell people I'm the oldest of six, even though I lost a brother. And, um, mm-hmm. and I think one of the things we were, we had to do is, you know, as kids, as siblings, um, especially when Eric was off to the hospital a lot. And, and, and it was weird because you couldn't plan it. You know, there would be, you know, sometimes he may be going up just for a checkup or something, you know, check the blood count, and may the blood count's gone sideways, he's staying there. And so that means, you know, my mother's not coming back that night. And so um, we really had to... Um, um, in some ways, take care of ourselves, and we really everybody ended up with different um, roles and such. Um, I was the driver. I was the chauffeur. I was the oldest. I was able to get my license a little bit earlier. We did some provision that actually applies to farm equipment and people driving tractors, and so I was driving 
by myself by the age of 15 and a half. And um, that meant I was, you know, getting my siblings to school if that was the deal, getting my youngest, picking up my youngest sister from daycare, um, especially if my mom wasn't coming home that night. I became the wheels. I was a wheels guy. Um, my the next one down, Susan, my sister, um, became a very good cook. You know, she she was the one cooking us there. My middle brother Chris, and he's still this way. He's the one who um, kind of held everything kind of together on the home front, especially with the younger ones. I've got a younger brother after him, Brian, and then the younger sister Amy. You know, he babysit. He would just kind of. He's always been the kind of the glue guy, so to speak, the one that holds it together, which I think is kind of the role of the middle sibling anyway. And um, I've always been kind of, we're all very, very different. <laughs> In some ways, we're kind of like the doctors a little bit. Um, and we certainly have our arguments and we have our disagreements and, you know, the fur flies. But um, one of the things that we don't do that I see other families do. And and it, it just kind of, um, I don't know, breaks me up a little bit, is we don't hold grudges, you know? Mm-hmm. When it's done, it's done. You know, if I learned any lesson out of all this is time short, so you better do what you want to do. And, mm-hmm. uh, and don't let grudges mess it up. Don't let excuses mess it up. Don't let fear mess it up. Um, do it. And, um, and so, you know, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's, um, I just, I guess, close with this. We, um, my, my dad died last March, March 15th, heights of March. And we had a big, um, uh, memorial kind of service for him. It was outside so we could do it. And, um, luckily it didn't rain. And, and pretty much all of us spoke. I guess everybody spoke except Amy, but Amy did the program. And um and actually my brother Chris was the MC and and all of us spoke about different things in my father's life, but you know, we all brought uh more or less what we were good at to that day. And it was really kinda cool just to kinda sit back and, and watch it and uh and realize that even Something my sister Susan may do just drives me up the wall. It's not going to keep me from calling her tomorrow, um, you know, et cetera. You know, so, you know, you go through something like this, something, you know, petty things don't, don't, <laughs> they don't matter. So you got you to gotta move. The Cancer History Project is a collaborative historical resource operated by the Cancer Letter. This is an ongoing project and would not be possible without the input and materials provided by our editorial board, our contributors, and the support of our sponsors, including Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey, City of Hope, SWOG Cancer Research Network and the Hope Foundation for Cancer Research, Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, Sarah Cannon Research Institute, UPMC Hillman Cancer Center, University of Chicago Comprehensive Cancer Center, and many others. View a few lists of our sponsors at cancerhistoryproject.com slash sponsors. If your institution would like to participate in the Cancer History Project, email us at admin at cancerhistoryproject.com.